Hello, this is Real History with Melissa, and don't know what date that this is going to go up, but I am excited that I am sitting right next to Diana, the transcriber. Ooh, <laughs> yeah, here I am. Hello. So we're hoping that we're sharing the mic in a way that is, this all sounds good we're so, sharing a mic. Yes, we're sharing a mic. We're here in the new office space, which is the new and improved, the old new and improved office space. So I just wanted to say really quickly that, sorry, that Diana came out here almost two weeks ago. She's leaving um, in two days, but she has been here helping me, and it's the most incredible help. I can't even. I just could, couldn't possibly convey to you the mess of things when she got here and what she has been able to accomplish, and both of us together, but shes I, I've called her a force of nature and an organizational like genius or, I don't know. It's I just can't tolerate clutter, so <laughs> that's where it comes from. Or the frustration of having to, not being able to find something and then, you know... When you can't find it, you go buy another one, and it just adds to the clutter. It's a crazy, crazy scenario. But well, anyway, she's very good at it. I mean, it's it's beyond not being able to tolerate clutter. I think she's got. She works like incre like a speed demon. I mean, it's amazingly fast. Everything that belongs together is together. There's nothing out of place. And I'll walk in a room, like, uh, I've, I feel like I've only been out of it for 10 minutes, and I come in and it's completely different. So we're <laughs> So if you want to tell people what you saw when you got here. Oh, I mean, it was, uh, it's not bad. I mean, I've seen worse. I've done lots of uh, projects like this. Um, it's not like a, a hoarder's, you know, lair or anything but it was just filled with you know your parents life you know 70 yeah. years of life two yeah. people and four children and yeah. you know people just they're, they're not in the habit of um, like what I do is maybe once a month I'll open up a cupboard and you know this is a little fuller than I like let me go through here and see what I don't use or haven't touched for a year or two or five and you know give it to goodwill and then straighten it out, and um, I feel better again. But I don't think most people just do that at all. And so cupboards and closets and sheds and garages and bedrooms and nooks and crannies just start filling and filling and filling and filling. Or, you know, you buy a, a VCR. <laughs> I'm dating myself. Yeah. You know, you buy a new piece of equipment for your computer or your entertainment, and you save the box because you think... You know, I might have to return it. And so you tuck it away in the garage, and then it's sitting there eight years later. You know, it's just getting rid of stuff that needs to go. So that's really all it is. My husband once said to me, he said, he said it's, it's like, uh, oh, what was it? He was in the bedroom, and there was a, I think he had gotten up from bed to to do something, and I had straightened the bed out and made it and, and put everything away. By the time he got back from the bathroom, he said he thought aliens came through. 
because <laughs> it was just so quick. <laughs> For me, I, you know, I was taking my time doing my little thing, and so yeah, it's just something, uh, something I do. It's just something I do. Well, it is. It is really something to behold because, and the other thing too that you said to me the other day is that you did not understand that I wasn't moved in. No, I didn't. Not, I mean, you told me, but I didn't understand to this level. Yeah. I mean, she tucked herself into a space of like maybe 30 square feet where her desk and bed and clothing and everything was just all squished together and <laughs> I, I was I said it took me like two or three days or no even more than that before I said you know I was really shocked when I saw your bedroom set up because she'd been telling me for a couple of years that she's not sleeping well and you know different yeah. listeners have been sending her stuff to help her sleep and when I walked in the room, I was like, well, your modem is like four <laughs> feet from your head. You know, I, mean, I don't know how you could sleep like that. Well, I knew that that wasn't good, but it had a, <laughs> it had a Faraday cage on it. So <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> yeah, like yeah I, well, and I sent that for that reason. Cause I thought, well, maybe yeah. that will help. I just didn't realize it was, you know, four yeah. feet from your head while you're sleeping and Right at the head level while you're sitting at your desk, and I was like, "Oh no, 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 no!" I know. No, I've already, I've probably already fried half the brain. But <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I, I last night was the first night in my childhood bedroom. I'm back, yeah. <laughs> as my brother said, I've come full circle. So I now have a room that's just dedicated to sleeping. More no electronics. No whatsoever. electronics in there. I don't even charge anything. It's electronic free, and uh, and I have an office and in an old bedroom. Yeah, which are you know what thirty feet apart. Yeah, yeah. You, you have to have that psychological separation. Yeah. So, so it's much better. I mean, a weight. We so I said last night after just days. I mean, the physical work we've done, just hauling things around, and we've had. I must have done about four trips to Goodwill getting ready for your visit and then I think we have done together what six trips to a few. eight, eight a few. well a, yeah. a bunch six or eight trips yeah. we've it seems like we're yeah and regulars just, just as much trash too it's sitting, uh, oh, sitting in a big mound that yeah the, the trash right pickup now, but, is is yeah. next week so but it's you know yeah it's, 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 it's a lot it's a life it's your yeah. parents you know yeah. 70 years of two people and lives. and many cherished things are saved you know and mm -hmm. but there are little dedicated places for those memories and those little family treasure type things but it uh, it's a different place it's a completely different place so. It's spacious, <sighs> and, and we have to say, pleasant. And, <laughs> and Diana is so quick and good at this that I had, um, when I was cleaning out in Canada, I had gotten to the very, very back corner of a closet oh. that hadn't been cleaned <laughs> out in a while. It was just what she was describing, and in the in the very back corner. I found two rolls of unused wallpaper, and they were never in that house in Esther in Canada. That wallpaper wasn't there. 
it was just two rolls of wallpaper. And I thought it was such a sweet pattern. It was really simple, but there were little birds on it. And yes, it's yeah, nice and neutral. It's nice, brown. neutral. Yeah. And we looked at that, and Diana said, well, let's redo all the kitchen cabinets with the <laughs> which, light. Which was probably like the last thing on the list, but we threw it in there. Like, okay, well, she got it done and then organized the pantry, and I mean like way over and above anything I thought was going to get accomplished in this visit. So now, can we do the chorus of angels every time I go down in the kitchen? Oh my goodness, yeah. I guess. We open we up have the... to look at something and be inspired. Oh, okay, well let's just open up this drawer here, okay. which you also organized. No, this has did this. Oh, I did that? Oh, oh I did oh. that. <laughs> <laughs> because it's, it's so pleasant, yeah. It's so we go. Angels are singing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> From room to room, and we open up, up uh, closet doors. And so it's it's exciting. I, I feel much better. It is so it's nice yeah. to be organized. It is so... Uh, such a weight off to have things make sense. And I have to say that nothing in my physical space has made sense for, for a long time. Oh, yeah. three Even years. In a stare, though. You well, in a stare, Alan, I mean, Alan said, yeah. well, it was, it was a different kind of clutter. I mean, and, you know, Alan knew where everything was, and I knew where everything was, but it was, as Alan said, it wasn't a home. It was like living in a toolbox, and that's exactly <laughs> what it was like. Because the basement, yeah, the basement wouldn't exactly flood. But no matter what, the way the house was built and set into the hill, when it started to melt in the spring, you would get moisture in the basement enough so that everything had to be off the ground. You, it was just a real difficult situation to live with that moisture and you know always want to try to do your best to abate it inside the house so that yeah. you're not living in a mold chamber you know, mm -hmm. there were some challenges there but he had a lot of tools <laughs> that should have been in the basement that he didn't want to you know lose were upstairs so everything he knew he had his place for this is if the truck needs repair this is when we're going to go cut wood this is when i have to redo something on the Just boxes, uh, and boxes and boxes tools and, yeah, yeah toolboxes yeah millions all of made toolboxes million. oh my goodness i've never seen so many toolboxes but wow. it really was like living in a toolbox so i've gone from living in a toolbox to living in my parents long and and it's uh, a fruitful relationship it's a beautiful so. house too it's it's lovely i mean it's you know it's you know it's, 50 it is years falling old apart it's breaking but, but it's down, beautiful but it's it's beautiful you could you could imagine it in its heyday yeah. so yeah anyway this has been, I wanted to say this, the sheer exhaustion that we've experienced every day after, say, 12 to 15 hours yeah, of grueling so. labor. Oh, my God. And let me add, this house is two stories, <laughs> and Melissa has three rooms upstairs. And there's 14 stairs, I will tell you. Oh, yeah, I didn't know that. <laughs> there are 14 <laughs> stairs. Yes, and, and by I think by two or three days ago, I'd have to, oh, my God, I have to go up the stairs. Again. I, I'm okay going down, but it's like, oh, I'm going to go up the stairs again. My 
My husband will be happy with my butt. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> That's great. It's like, oh no, the stairs. Yeah. I, I live, I don't have stairs, but oh, yeah. I'm, I'm up and in her and her yeah. brother are just yeah. zipping up and down. And I know. My, I, my body is not adjusted to stairs. No, I'm up and down them all day long and, and it doesn't, it doesn't even, <laughs> I don't even think about it as, <laughs> oh, the stairs. I'm very conscious of them. <laughs> 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 Poor. <laughs> But I, I try to, every time I go down, take something that needs to get done. Every time I come up, try to bring it if it needs to come up, you know. So don't be empty-handed when you uh, move it on the stairs. Uh, I've kind of gotten used to, like, going downstairs and then looking around going, what did I come down here for? I know, I know. <laughs> Yeah. And then I'm back up, and the moment that I get upstairs, oh, yeah. <laughs> well, because all of your stuff was stored in the shed, yeah. which is, you know, obviously uh, downstairs, outside, you know, for a few more steps down out there, you know. And so everything out there needed to come up, and everything yeah. up here needed to go down. So it was quite a challenge. And Diana is so amazing at this that it's not <laughs> only all of this, but... She moved some of my mom's pots around and made it pretty. My mother oh, was garden. an amazing gardener, yeah. and I'm not. Um, I mean, I'm, maybe I could be if I had the time and inclination, but she really kept this garden nice. And so Diana's like, oh, let's reclaim this pot. Let's put it over here. Well, I actually have a couple of hummingbird feeders hung up mm-hmm. now. That was new. So it's just a cheerful, pleasant thing. And what I was thinking about the other day is that I remember listening to Alan's early talks, and he'd say he was run off his feet. And he was all day long doing this and that, and he didn't even have time to eat. He was run off his feet. And I remember listening to those talks thinking, why is nobody feeding that man? You know, (laughs) somebody get up there and feed him. And, oh, you know, he'd say, I just, I never have time. And finally I'm like, okay, it has to be me. I have to be the one to go up and feed him. And Diana was telling me a few days ago that even though I had never told her what the situation was, that everything was in the shed and that I lived four feet from my modem and I, I, literally. I literally rolled out of my office chair onto the bed, you know, literally, literally, literally two feet away. I mean, it, you know, yeah, it was like she was living in a tiny house inside of a large house. <laughs> and so I didn't tell her this, but she told me that she had the sense from all those thousands of miles away that what I really needed, even though I'd never said this, was for someone to come and organize my space. Someone to help you. Yeah. Yeah. And she did. And I have to say that to me, what she has done is a gift of her talent and resources that is so generous that it's just the essence of tribe. And that gets us to, I just want to say a little bit about Diana for the people who did not listen to the very first real history that I did with you the almost a year one. ago. Yeah, it was, that number, was four. number four. So that would have been late it February. Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. So about a year ago. Mm-hmm. And in there, I introduced her as the title, actually, of that episode was The Transcriber. And Diana has been transcribing Alan's talks for eight, well, 17 years now? 
16 years in this past year, 16. I've been just editing the ones you, you guys haven't been able to get out. You know, check my work, and I'm, I'm actually kind of flabbergasted at how much correction it needs. <laughs> I thought they were perfect. <laughs> but now that I, I'm not rushing and I'm not panicked to get to the next one, you know, I can do them at my, you know, comfortably without rushing, and I'm like, um, yeah, so the past year I've just been editing them so that they can get posted. Well, we're, str- we're, yeah, posted. we're streamlining a little bit. So 16 going on 17 years, and you mm. figure that it's going to take another full year to catch up. I think year, year yeah. and a half, yeah. yeah. And then the next... And, oh, uh, by the way, Faith in Canada. I haven't even gotten back to her yet. I've been so busy. But Faith volunteered because I said something about a month ago that some of the talks... The older ones before you started in have had were never transcribed for whatever reason, like a random oh. one in two thousand seven, just randomly. Wasn't yeah, I I put a, made a little chart of oh, all the good. Ones. Well, we so, can yeah. share. So she's she wants to do those. To, great. Yeah. yeah. So this is a major commitment that Diana made to transcribing the talks. We're streamlining it a little bit because there always has been. She transcribed. Then they would get up to Canada, and when Jason was helping, that was one thing that he would do, was proofread them, listen, proofread, and then put them into the little HTML code that it needed to get up on the website. And then I was on my own with everything, with the uploading from really 2013, but for sure full-time by 2015, because Jason was back and forth in those two years after... RBN stopped and, you know, uh, so, but from, say, 2013 on, uploading the, you know, proofing and uploading the transcripts became my job. And you will all know who were following closely that I didn't do a very good job with that because there were so many other things that were demanding my time and attention that I had to make a low priority for that. And I really felt bad because I regularly heard from people who, greatly appreciated the transcripts. So I'm happy, but now we've got this process where she's doing her own proofing. I'm actually going to teach her the rudiments of the HTML. Oh, oh that was <laughs> not, that, that wasn't angels, that was like no, a terror. That was, that was a terror <laughs> scream. Like, oh my God, I have to learn code. But, and, and then for people and... that are used to looking at the cutting through the mate, we're going to make the transcript section, it's probably going to look a little bit more like the sentinel, the sentient sentinel site. We're yeah, going we, to have we one color. We discussed the, uh, the crayon box that exploded. <laughs> I read it. There was a comment somebody made that I happened to read. And when I read it, I just burst out laughing and thought, it does look yeah. like that. So, so I've, I've actually had feedback over the years from the black background on the website. Some older people, and I'm now in that category, say that the red ink the red type gets lost on the black background mm-hmm. and they can't see it. And so I think, you know, we'll, we'll think about the it. index, but for sure the transcript page is the, is going to be one color. It's not going to be five colors because those five colors, that's coding. That's me changing. And every time a transcript, oh my every time a transcript gets added or six transcripts, the whole sequence of color code has to change for the entire page. Each time. How uh, this is, it's I like mean, hours so of unnecessary work. I was watching your joint go, I'm like, are you kidding me? 
I was like, no, that's too much. Yeah. Yeah, we gotta we gotta make this just more efficient. But what I'm talking about here with tribe is a sense of connection that I have to you because of your sense of dedication. It it when Diana discovered Alan's work, well you just say what happened and your sense of what well, needed yeah. to be done. You know, we did that in the other interviews. Just basically I I had this compulsion, you know, um, that the t- the talks needed to be in print and they had already had quite a few transcriptions on there but I think they had stopped for a while and I was like well I know how to type you know let me see how difficult this is and and I just managed to work it out and I just it just seemed important so I went for it but yeah I was compelled to do it it was there was a point you know my husband was throwing a fit you know you're not getting paid and what do you spend all this time? But I just felt like it needed to be done, and uh, no one else was doing it, and I had the capabilities, so I did it, you know. And I couldn't shake it, you know, and I even stopped for like three months or six months or something, I don't remember, thinking, oh, my God, the FBI is, I'm targeted now, and they're going <laughs> to come kill me because Alan's so important, and, you know, six lives are in danger from what I'm doing. <laughs> it's a little irrational, but once I got past that fear and, you know, overcame it, you know, and I went back to uh, transcribing, I never stopped again. And we finally, I finally finished them a year yeah. ago. And then we started, and then I started editing. And then, so. then Diana um, just basically got a message from Alan that you know, one one of those in the ether after he left this physical realm, and she just felt like he said, "Make transcript booklets." Oh <laughs> right, yeah. No, he. I was sitting at my desk. I, don't, I, don't, I think I was working on a transcript. I don't remember what it was, but. I felt him standing just to my left, you know, where I could look up and look up at him. And he says, here, let me show you something. You know, And it's not like I'm seeing him physically standing there, but it's, the presence. it's, it's an impression of presence. Yeah. And he, he took a piece of paper, eight and a half by 11, and turned it, you know, so it was a uh, landscape. He folded it in half. He said, here's your book. He said, now look what you can do with the book. He folded it in half again, the same direction, so now it's a long strip. And he said, look, I can tuck it up my sleeve, I can tuck it up my pants. He said, I can fold it again, except in half, so it's smaller. I can tuck it in my boot. It was, he said, it needs to be able to be concealed. And I I said, okay. So I uh, I think I, f- I played around with some softwares to see how to make a little booklet out of, you know, just a basic document and printed up some examples and talked to Melissa about it and sent her the samples and that's how that evolved. But yeah, it was it was Alan's idea entirely. Not he just showed it to me is all. Which I think is really cool. Yeah. Um, when when Weston was helping, what he and that was another really big help that he a young man at a crossroads in career who's like okay I'm not going to go this direction but I'm not sure career wise where I'm going you know gave almost a year and a half of his life to helping me 
um, and and he learned how to upload to the website and do different things. And that his presence here for that time, he's been gone now almost a year. After, you know, mm-hmm. allowed me to have the time to just breathe. And it was during that breathing space that I didn't bother to unpack. <laughs> <laughs> In that breathing space that I came up with the idea of real history and started that. So mm-hmm. that was a nice little window there. And but, dynamic independence as well. Well, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And all of that, and it was, you know, Weston was the first guest on dynamic mm-hmm. independence mm-hmm. and kind of opened that door and started that. So his presence here, uh, you know, really did help me be able to focus on I would just say a few more creative things. And it was he who tackled the software for the video and then said, look, you can do this and kind of, you know, said, this is what you do. This is how you drag the image. And it really helps um, when somebody who's like 30 years younger than you and Mm. much more adept at Mm -hmm. at the current software can go, oh, it's just easy, you know, here, drag and drop and blah, blah, blah. So that was a nice thing. But it was, dear. I, I just lost my train of thought there. I was, That's okay. The, the tra- oh, the transcripts is what I was thinking about. Oh. He got once you said the booklet idea. Mm-hmm. Then I'm like, oh, cool. We could actually make them really tight and compact, and we could put them in a bottle and then stop them and throw them in the ocean. I was making a joke. Following up on your thing of Alan saying they have to be concealed and there's going to come a time when there's not going to be an internet and all of that. And Weston loved that idea so much. He said, let's put the transcripts in a bottle and then drive down to the coast and toss them into the ocean. ocean. (laughs) We'd probably be arrested for littering, you know, whatever, you know. Whatever excuse they would come up with. Oh, I'm sure. It wouldn't be just littering. It would be a hate crime because of what you're littering. (laughs) Yes, it would. In this climate, yeah. But I want to interject here and just say, you know, I'm, I'm grateful that after Alan passed away and, you know, there was the brief time where you had to, 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 to pack up and move and get down here, that just your, focus and attention on maintaining the website was just so intense that you didn't put yourself first. You didn't put your environment first or getting settled and making your little nest, which is what we just did. Was Her mother's home has now become her home. But just that you put that on hold. You put your ego on hold and your needs on hold and your health on hold so that the show could continue, so that the the information could get out there. And I think that is beyond commendable. So that's part of the tribe thing. Wow. You know, your piece of the tribe. Oh, you're so. making me all tear up. <laughs> no, okay. We're we're just gonna gush on each other. You know? Well, I, I think to you know, to me, that's that's a lesson I learned with Alan. Is mm-hmm. you know, it's we may not matter. It. I mean, everything that we do is important, and Alan would be the first to say, "You matter." Mm-hmm. But in the big scheme of things, in the big picture, we matter because we are moving forward what, 
he called the underground stream, the yeah. real underground stream of knowledge. And that's why we matter, I think. Right, right. And I think that underground stream is 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 God's movement through the world, through people, because you have your purpose with main, maintaining and forwarding Alan's website. And my purpose was the transcripts and get in and getting it out there so that when there is no internet or whatever happens that it can still move forward it's like we each have our 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 place in the body of of god that anyway that's <laughs> that's the underground stream as i perceive it so and you've made a new purpose for yourself as well by literally saying to yourself and then doing it in your actions it's not just the transcripts but i am willing and prepared to support you oh yeah like by yeah. physically hauling boxes i mean whatever it takes yeah, yeah. so that it's you important. can keep going yeah. and there and and i also wanted to talk you know besides us gushing on each other it really is tribe i have said this before i heard from somebody just this week when I went to the mailbox I got a little note and it made me so happy and I'm just going to give a shout out and say he's from Pennsylvania <laughs> it made me so happy when I saw it because it was a blast from the past name it was a name that had you know communicated with Alan for many many years and he sent a note and basically, you know, he said it just made him happy when he had heard me talk about tribe and, and mm -hmm. get, you know, bringing tribe together. And that really resonated with him. And I have to say that all of you who listen to this real history and the redux and everything, I also want to talk about... Matt in British Columbia, who lives with his wife, um, who's from Poland, and lives with his wife and son kind of out, and they hunt, and they're very, they, they do a lot of self-sustaining things, but we talked a bit about it, just the fact that I'm, I've been pretty careless with myself, and he said... Mm -hmm you have to take better care of your health. And I'm like, oh, you know, because people say that. And it, you know, and finally he, he got it. He just went right in with the knife. He said, if you don't, then who takes care of the website? Exactly. Just think if you are healthy, then you've got that many more years of looking after Alan's work. And I'm like, Okay, well, that got my attention. <laughs> yes, and, and that's, you know, that was always in the back of my mind because since I didn't meet Melissa until Alan died, and she's the one that let me know that he passed away. I didn't even know she existed for 17 years, and you were probably reading my emails. Well, yeah. To him, you know, the, the few and far between. But, you know, there was either uh, you were exhausted or you were wiped out or you were getting, you know, you know, you know, attacks from this side or that side or your equipment was breaking or, you know, whatever. And then you had the nose with the cancer. And that's when I was just like, no, we, we, we've we got to go there and check out what's happening because <laughs> she's breaking down. She's <laughs> physically breaking down and that has to stop, you know, and, and we had become good friends over the phone. 
So I, it just seemed yeah. important. And, you know, we we're friends. I yeah. wanted to meet you, and so now we've met and yeah. lived together, and we're elbow to elbow for two weeks, <laughs> and we have never argued about anything. <laughs> so, yeah, we just hit it off well. So, and I yeah. had, it, there's something else, too, is that, uh, you know, Diana's got great ideas about things. And there have been just like a couple of times where she'll say something and I'll go, no, I don't want to do that. And then I'll walk through the room later where she made the suggestion and I'll think, well, you know, she's right. <laughs> so, okay, we'll move it over there. <laughs> but I wanted to say about Matt mm-hmm. oh, that sorry. he got me going keto. mm and mm-hmm. I don't know that I'll be sustaining this forever and ever, but... It works. It works. Yeah, I, yeah. I started right after Christmas, and I have been eating so much meat and fat that it's crazy, and very little of anything else. I mean, our, what what have we had for breakfast pretty much every morning? Eggs and bacon. Eggs and bacon. Eggs and yeah, bacon. Eggs and bacon, maybe some slices of cheese. Yeah, she's, I've been, I thought, well, you know, I'll try keto while I'm here with her and see how it goes and, you know, stop eating so much sugar, which is my crux. Yeah. <laughs> I and I, you sugar, know, I, my, the, my beloved great. friends from Germany that are also, I, I don't want to talk too much about it, but have also done some amazing work on behalf of Alan's legacy, which I will share with you when, at the appropriate time, but they just sent me a box with some jam and some amazing homemade German biscuits, which are different. I mean, they're it's they're they're not as cloyingly sweet as other yeah, cultures' yeah. kinds of desserts are. Yeah. And I did break keto so that I could so have to some taste, of it. Taste the biscuits. Yes, <laughs> they were good. But what I'm saying is that Matt and BC helped me a lot because I feel so much better for eating a lot of meat and protein and mm-hmm. cutting sugar out of my diet all the way. I mean, just all the yeah, way. Yeah, she's pretty clean. And it's, I, I've i got some energy. So between a new space and a new physical diet, diet yeah. So one tribe member handled the diet, one yeah. tribe <laughs> member did the organizing, and one but, tribe member, you know, each one, we help each other, like... Well, it just makes me think of all your real history interviews and all the different people and how they've affected my thinking. Yes. You, you mean, well, like... I, I, yeah. Well, I think so. I think that, that that is a good time to launch into it. Be, I, and I want to just... Before you launch into that, I want to say that this is really what we're here for. Mm-hmm. And this is the, the strong sensation that I had. We're coming up on three years without Alan's physical presence on this plane and that is that's like a week and a half away or so two weeks away Mm. and I have never lost that sensation that I had right at the beginning that there is an urgency definitely an urgency that came on with Alan at the time of Operation COVID because he knew mm-hmm. this was it. It was all coming together. And that has stayed with me, that that we have turned a corner from which, in a certain way, there's no going back. There's no return. I, I agree. You can feel it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yet, an Orthodox Christian might call it remnant people. 
but I will call it tribe. And I will say that I had a, a, a again, almost like the sense of Alan standing at, you know, over my shoulder as he was with Diana in the transcript books, that I had the sense that this was what I was supposed to do, mm -hmm. was bring people together. And I, I know that I have, like, there, you know, a listener in Colorado said, I'm in Colorado, do you happen to know anybody? And well, as a matter of fact, I do. And they're, they are in the same exact area and they've become good friends. And there are these, yes, That's there are great. these stories. There's an, you know, Giovanni, who I did a real history with, struck he up a friendship. really with. affected me. His interview really affected so me. So launch in on who affected, because there were two that really, really affected you profoundly. Well, many, yeah. Well, but yeah. Giovanni, I guess, because he also had the experience and and knowledge and interaction with, you know, spirits, to, for lack of a better word. And it's not just the impression of a spirit, but the direct seeing that in a, in a physical person's body, a demonic overtaking of a person, you know, I've, I've seen and experienced that as well. And for him to talk about it just so matter-of-factly was incredibly impactful I, I didn't feel alone anymore or crazy or isolated or you know not that I still had anybody else to talk to about it except maybe Melissa but it, it really made a difference and um, I forget the man in Ireland what his name was he Paul. Talked, Paul yeah he talked about uh, uh, narcissism and Dr. Romani on YouTube I watch her all the time, and she will really lay out for you. And, and yeah, it's specifically about narcissism, but you can kind of extrapolate from there psychopathic personalities. And from time to time, she'll go into psychopathy and things like that. But you really get a clue as to who you're interacting with in the world based on you know, how she explains narcissism, because I think our world is just overrun with narcissism, and I think intentionally we've been created to be narcissistic, just in love with ourselves, focused on ourselves, only what we can get, how we can get it, whatever, and then the manipulation of other people to achieve those ends. And I think a lot of us are, you know, on the, the receiving end of it, or what, or what she would call we're the supply for the narcissist. So it's just really enlightening. And faith, for some reason, you really impact me, but, but I, I can't say why. I, I don't know. I, I, I try to isolate, what is it about faith? What is it about her that just really got to me? And I, I think it was just your personality. I tell you what I love about Faith. She's yeah. a sunbeam. She's oh, a ray of sunshine. Maybe she, that's what it is. But just, I just, Faith just yeah. stuck out. And uh, Paul in Ireland and Giovanni for me. And also, uh, I think it was uh, the gentleman from South Africa that was talking about, like, the, he did the, the audio the small audio that you put before one of the reduxes, and he was talking about people and groups and how they move. Oh, that's Darren. Darren, that's book yeah. club Darren. And, yeah. yeah, well, yeah. I, I got to thinking about it, and it, it's like 
I've seen flocks of starlings move mm-hmm. like that, and it, and it, it, I just really resonated with that talk as well. And I, so I think everybody out there is going to resonate with different people. But each interview, I get something out of. Yeah. But I think Giovanni was the most impactful for me. Well, yeah. it's it, it's interesting too because um, about tribe is that we are very different. Mm -hmm. And so, like, for instance, we're going, we we know, we didn't talk about what we were going to talk about, but we kind of just sketched the idea that spirits, the preternatural, Mm. all of that would, would probably be something that you would want to talk about. And, for instance... Matt said, no, no, you know, not going there. That's, you know, in terms of he just, this is the world and there's nothing beyond that. You know what I'm saying? It's this plane. Who's Matt? BC, Quito. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, that's all right. And then, you know, interestingly, when I started The Real History with Malcolm in England, he made a point, I think I, I, we, I didn't follow up or pursue it with him in the conversation, but he made a point there that I felt was a follow-up to the conversation I'd had with Matt, where he said um, it has been his experience that things that happen in this world are mostly explained, you know, causally. Yeah, so it's a secular. It, well, it's it's a cause and effect. Mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. and and I think that we're most people want to believe that. Even Alan told me repeatedly that he would much prefer it, that life would be simpler, that everything would be uh, easier to communicate to himself, to process for himself or communicate to other people if he could make a rational explanation, mm-hmm. a purely cause and effect explanation for things that he had observed or experienced in his lifetime. He said it would be much easier. But he had reached a point in his life where that was not possible. No, no. And some I, things are just supernatural or preternatural. But for tribe, I think that the beautiful thing is that we can accept it's okay with me if it's cause and effect for you. Mm-hmm. It's okay with me if you see that this world is the material and that a, it, that's a all there is. Plane. It's a single plane. Yeah. I, I, I don't feel that way based on experiences that I've had, but I think that the tribe is a way of resonating with a body of truth mm-hmm. and processing it for yourself and then being supportive of the work or the source, which is Alan, that has provided a play a platform that we are even, you know, standing on to be able to talk and communicate and have relationships with one another, mm-hmm. and to respect that we aren't cookie cutters. That is what it is to be an individual. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Well, you are going to dive in. I think we, at the end of the very first conversation that we had um, last year on Real History, 
I think when that was all done, you said, I think there are some places that I would like to go someday, but I'm not ready to go. Yeah. And I think, I think we're going to go into an area right now well, that, it, it, that's it's, painful. <laughs> well, and it's going to be difficult to hear yeah. for a lot of people because it's, it's a hard thing to face. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's hard for me to face, but it's my history. So, right. so I, I, I think let's talk about abuse. Let's okay. just talk about abuse. Well, when I was, uh, I was, uh, in the army, I was 18 to 22 years old and I got to go to Germany for a couple of years. I just remember being there and I would have these, uh, I, and I don't know why or where it came from. Maybe somebody was talking about their childhood, maybe I, but, but I would always have this big, huge blank spot, you know, from, you know, birth till 11 years old when my mom divorced my dad. And from that point forward, when my dad was out of my life, I could remember my life. But before that, it was just this big blank slate, and it baffled me. I'm like, that's not right. People remember their childhoods, you know. I'm like, why can't I? And, you know, I'd go out and, you know, in the middle of the night and find a phone booth, and I'd call my sister, because you don't have your own phone in the Army. Um, but, yeah, I'd get a roll of, you know, uh, marks. I forget what they're called, equivalent of a quarter. And uh, I'd call my sister and I'd say, you know, Mary, do you remember our childhood? Because I don't. I don't. I don't understand that. It's just weird. And she's like, no, I don't either. And we would just kind of throw that back and forth. And I said, well, that's got to mean something, doesn't it? I mean, and it's. And I had no experience with psychology or any of that. But I just thought, you know, the the, the mind is doing something to not be able to um, remember. And so, the, you know, there was probably maybe two calls like that over the course of two years. And, you know, my life went on, and it was also the time in Germany. I started searching for God. You know, where's God? I went to the churches, tried the New Age, did all that. Well, I got out of the Army and went uh, back home, met a friend. Yeah, I was in Dallas, I think. But she was uh, sexually assaulted by her father, and she had been going to a psychiatrist for years and years and years. I think like 15, and may, we were maybe 29-ish, 28, 29. We worked together, and she was a cutter. She would cut her skin open, just eight, nine-inch cuts along mm. her arms and legs and her abdomen. And it just freaked me out. But anyway, we were in my apartment, and she happened to bring a book over, and she flopped the book over. I think it was a psychology book or something along those lines. And in there it was taught, because I had mentioned to her that I had lots of bladder infections as a child. I remember going to the doctor a lot. And uh, she, she said, well, I want you to read this. And it was a couple of paragraphs about sexual assault, you know, childhood molestations, you know. That was the feeling I got, and I was like, I knew right then, I thought, there has to be a ring of truth here. And so I, I said, okay, well, thanks for giving me the book, you know, and she said, well, what do you think about that? And I said, oh, well, I think it, you know, it might have some validity, you know, I don't have any real memories or recall of it, but, you know, I sense that it's it's there because of that feeling in my gut, 
And so time went on, and, and, and I decided not to go to a shrink because I saw her ex as an example. You know, she'd been going to a shrink for 15 years, and she's cutting her skin open. It was just, I was like, no, a shrink is not the answer. So, uh, you know, I dove into the New Age self-help books, you know, read different things, learned about your inner child. And so I thought, well, okay, if this has some validity, let me talk to my inner child, you know, because she's the one holding the key to the, to the memories. And so I just, you know, kind of had little dialogues in my head with her, with me. Um, you know, like, hi, I'm, you know, I think there's something going on here and we should get to know each other and just that you should know that I'm the adult now and I now protect you and I'm your, your guardian and you don't have to be scared or afraid anymore. Uh, small snippets of memories were released and the first one was of seeing a man's thigh next to my face. And I thought, well, that's not right for a little girl, you know. So you take that in and absorb that for a while. I didn't know what man it was connected to. I, you know, I just assume it was my father. You know, and then more time would go on. I guess it was for the inner inner child of me to see how I'd handle it if I'd, you know, you know, ignore it or, you know, invalidate or whatever, but I didn't. I said, okay, I accept that. Thank you. And more time went on and I never, I never really got, it, it's kind of like a, a motion picture, a reel of film where you take, you can cut all the little snippet. A part of the healing was being able to communicate it to other people. And you know, at first you kind of gingerly put it out there because you don't want to be judged or, you know, be, be, you know, looked down upon or you're dirty or bad or whatever, the shame associated with it. But um, I realized over time I, I can't soften this. I can't soften the blow. I have to say it for what it is. And so I said, I started to say to people, yeah, I was sexually abused by my father. You know, and I knew it was from the ages of four to 11. My mom divorced my dad at 11, so that's when it stopped. That's when my memories, you know, re you know, became normal again. But um, time went on. I learned more things. And I realized that um, there was a certain point during the process that I made a conscious decision to become my father's lover because I tried to communicate to my mom what was going on, but she couldn't grasp it. She couldn't, um, I don't know if it was accept, but she believed me. She, Because she, I, I, I couldn't communicate what was happening. So I didn't have the words to explain it. I, she couldn't quite understand what I was going for or going, you know, trying to tell her. And so I thought, well, let me show her. And so instead of trying to hide things when I was in my dad's presence with her, you know, just the normal day-to-day -day life, you know, like she'd be in the kitchen, he'd be in the living room laying on the couch watching TV. Well, now I'm going to go and sit in between his legs, you know, as he's on the couch and kind of drape myself on him and, and just just put it in her face that, 
you know, see, see this, see what's happening, because I can't say it with words. I'm going to show you, even though I couldn't blatantly just, you know, do something graphic. But, uh, you know, it was unspoken, but I tried to communicate it with body language. And um, she started, I think she started to get it. And as the t- that was at nine years old, and I had to say to myself, well, when I, when I owned that, when I owned that piece that I made that choice, even though I was nine years old and it was misguided and it was, but that was my survival strategy at that age, that when I owned it, my shame for it went away. It, it was quite a, a revelation. And so as I, as an adult, as I communicated to people, I, I would, you know, so sexually assaulted by my father, and, and eventually, you know, I became his lover. And and why I would tell it people that way, I'm not quite sure. I think I wanted to, uh, it was like a little bit of a shock value. And I'm not sure why I did that. I even did it with my husband when I first met him, and I was 39. But um, I just needed people to know this is a part of me. And so this is, it might affect how I interact with you in certain ways. Um, so that was that. Um, so yeah. Let, re- let me um, interject here just a sure. little bit because I want you, you are the youngest of three girls. Yes. And yes. I think it's important to talk about how abuse, sexual abuse in a family situation how it starts we're not going to analyze at this moment a pedophile but how it starts in a family dynamic and when it starts Mm -hmm. and then relate Mm -hmm. your memories as opposed to your sisters who have processed nothing yeah yeah geez i'm going well i what what (laughs) what you have said to me in the past is that abuse does not start with the youngest well yeah i you know i I, alan talked about pedophilia a Mm -hmm. lot and all over the world and different things and when i first remembered the abuse and my girlfriend showing me that and i i called home and I, i you know talking to my mom about it and you know and and I said I really think that that happened once once the inner child in me showed me some images and and, and it became real. I told my mom, well she believed me but had no memory or recollection of it, and she put it by my two sisters at the time, over the phone, uh, and, and said, well they they don't remember anything either. And they never invalidated me or said, no, you're wrong, you're, you're crazy. But they just said, no, and so I've racked my brains. I've, you know, dug deep and I don't remember anything. But they but, also don't remember anything. No, they, they don't, don't remember, remember they their have, childhood like, blackout, either. So. Yeah, they don't remember the years before mom's divorce. But what I figured out, and it's quite obvious, you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist, but pedophiles don't start with the youngest child. And so it occurred to me that, well, okay, he had to have started with my oldest sister, Angie. And then after maybe, say, two or three years, you know, moved on to my my next sister, Mary, you know, had his time with her. And then I'm the youngest, you know, gets to me by the time I'm four years old. 
and there's no one to go to next. So it just continued on with me for a longer time period. And I think he could, you know, get away with it easier with one child instead of trying to juggle three while he's got the one. So... The other thing, too, um, a, a long time ago, we had a conversation. It's been at least six months, maybe nine months ago. And you told me a little bit of thinking that you had been doing around your mother prior to her leaving your father. And ways in which you knew, even though you confronted her as an adult, and she's like, okay, I believe you, but... But you actually had memories, which you had processed, that proved to you that she did know what was going on. Oh, yes, yes. Well, this this happened in this past year. We're going to jump around in time That's here, okay. I think. Well, Keep up. This is this year. No, uh, my whole life I've always thought that I should be baptized. And because when I was younger, my two sisters got baptized, but I didn't. And I never really knew why or understood why. But um, So this year I talked to my husband because he's, you know, a baptized Christian. And I said, well, I don't feel comfortable going to a church, having a stranger do this in front of a bunch of strangers. This is how about you just baptize me in the tub here at home. And you and me and the dog can be, the, <laughs> you two can be the witness. And, you know, he thought about it and he said, okay. And so he did, we, we chose, I chose Easter morning. So he baptized me Easter morning in our bathtub. And from that moment on, I said, okay, Jesus, you know, help me out here, uh, with, you know, whatever I need help with. And so he started to open up memories for me. And the memories that were of, we had a, our house as a child was, I won't call it a duplex, but it's similar. It was a, a main family house on the bottom with, I think, three bedrooms, four bedrooms. And the upstairs had two apartments, and then there was a basement below, which was separated because each apartment needed its own little basement space. So we had half of the down basement, and they each had a quarter, and there was laundry area and storage and stuff. But my dad had a little, uh, like a workspace office slash shop area that he would he would hang out down there. And that's where he would take me in the middle of the night. Somehow he would he would put my mother to sleep. I think he puts I think he put something in her her evening water, coffee, whatever it was that she drank at night, and so she would she would not be knocked out and be hard asleep. And then he would come and wake me up out of bed and take me downstairs. But from time to time, it was in it was afternoon times, and he'd be down there working. He'd call me over, hey, come sit on my lap. And he would do what he did. I'm not going to get into graphic details, but Mom would come down and catch him in, in various, uh, you know, we'd be clothed, but it, w- it would be inappropriate circumstances. And she'd be like, no, Ken, no. No, and so he, Jesus opened up those memories of their of their conversations and arguments back and forth. Ken, you need to knock that off. You need to stop. You need to quit. Whatever. And another memory was of uh, 
my sister Angie was becoming of age. She was she was about to get her you know first menstrual cycle, and and I'm just we were born just bam 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 one year right after the other. And she's like, well, Ken, you know, Angie's about to get her period, and if you keep messing around with Diana, you know, in no time at all, she's going to become pregnant. And there's no way. I'm not raising my grandchild and pretend it's my child because you can't seem to control yourself. You know, I remember that conversation very vividly, and that was when I told you. So that was really kind of a wake-up call. It was, okay, my mom did know. Mm -hmm. Because for 20 years, maybe even 25, yeah, it was 20, and then I was, yeah, I think 25 or 30 years. I always, I never had any memories of my mom knowing. And so I just trusted that, you know. But when that memory came, I thought, okay, she did know. She did know. And then I also had another memory of her talking to her girlfriend who lived just down the street, our neighbor. And, you know, we were friends with their kids and played with each other. And her husband also molested. Not She had a boy and a girl, older boy, younger girl. He molested the boy. And Marianne was her name. She was overly protective of her daughter never 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 left her alone with her husband and I, I was always confused by that but her and mom I remember her and mom talking about discussing it at the kitchen table and I happened to be walking through the hallway or something hearing them but yeah they they both had the same problem their husbands were sexually abusing their children except Marianne was able to protect her youngest who ironically her name was also Diana I was nicknamed Nana and she was nicknamed Nan so that's how they separated us out when they were talking but um yeah so that was another memory that let me know that okay mom knew and she knew it was in existence but up until this year no clue, no mm -hmm. clue, you know, and I'm what, they'll be 58 in August, so yeah, a lot of years before these memories came. The other thing that, that I just want to go back to is the decision that you made at the age of nine that through what you were showing your mother, I'm mm -hmm. going to show you what's going on, and you said... You may not have used the word lover in your nine-year-old mind. Right. But you said, this is what I'm going to do. So talk about those years between nine and 11 and how it pushed your mother to ultimately, because this was your goal, was to push her to, push do, her something, to, leave, to do something. To do something, to change something. Well, I'm not sure. I don't remember what I discussed with you about that. Well, I don't know that you have discussed it fully. I'm just, you know, what, well, what I'm just, saying is I think what it happened was, in those two years. I do remember that I progressively, it was, you know, was subtle. And then I think I, I became a little more blatant. Maybe, you know, touched his private part, you know, in front of her. You know, while he was clothed, obviously, or... Um, or he, you know, he felt more free to express himself because I was, and, you know, but yeah, my mom increasingly became more and more uncomfortable, more anxious, more upset, more bothered, more confrontational with him, and he just brushed her off, like, you're, you're irrelevant, you don't matter, and she just, 
she she got to a point where she was just not, she put her foot down and it was funny because I asked her because she still didn't remember anything and I said well if you don't remember any of that you know I, I think I would want how I said it to her is about five five or ten years ago I said mom if you don't remember me being sexually abused I said then why did you divorce dad what was that about and she said she said it was because he was drinking too much and what you know some you know usual you know run of the mill excuse that any divorced woman might say but i realized it was it was from what i was doing she couldn't she couldn't push it to the background she couldn't ignore or pretend it wasn't there anymore because we, we together were making it more obvious mm-hmm. And I, I intentionally did that. I mean, I don't know how my nine-year-old mind reasoned that out, but, you know, I did. So. Okay, I want to jump in time. We can come back. But I think that this is a good place. I'd like to get a little bit of your mother's history. So I'd like to go from when she divorced your father at 11... And then she ends up in Canada. And I'd like you to briefly cover that territory and then get to her remarriage and moving to Canada. So Sure, yeah. Uh, we were 11. or I was 11. Mary was uh, 12 and she 13. Uh, we moved to a small farm town in Iowa where her parents lived. We lived in their farmhouse with them for, I think, about a month till Mom was able to... We rented a farmhouse just down the just down the road from them. Uh, lived there for six years, and that's where we were able to start healing. Even though nothing was ever discussed, there, I just remember I would wake up in the middle of the night, you know, with terrible dreams or yelling or nightmares, and Mom would come to my room and she would soothe me and you know stroke my hair and. It's okay. You don't. You're safe now. You don't have to worry about that anymore. You don't have to think about that anymore. You know. And she would get me back to sleep, and that you know that went on for I think a couple of years. And it was so. You went from um, that straight into the military. That was the the six yeah. years between eleven and then eighteen, and then you're in the military. That's, yeah, yeah. And then I went into the military. Yeah. Okay. I, I just remember my sisters during that time in Iowa. Uh, they were always very baffled and, and confused as to why I was having nightmares and yelling in the middle of the night. So yeah. Uh-huh. Was- <laughs> and and, and, and to, to interject here too about your sisters is the impression that I have about both of your sisters, each it manifests in different ways, but the impression that I have is that both of them are incredibly emotionally crippled. Yes, yes, yes. So the this, what they say, uh, oh, I have no recollection, I've racked my brain, I can't come up with anything, this does not mitigate the fact i mean that what they're saying cannot cover over the incredible trauma and how it's manifested in their personality that's right yeah yeah my oldest sister angie she's turned 61 in december yeah and she's never been married she's there's no children she's had to have a hysterectomy um she 
has an STD that, you know, well, I guess is under control, but it's never going to go away. I think STDs never go away. And that's been with her pretty much like uh, forever. Oh, 20, 30 years, mm-hmm. yeah. And uh, she's incredibly controlling of her environment, and uh, she's... Uh, you know, desperate to have a husband, a mate, but uh, just it slips through her fingers all the time. She manages to draw men into her that just treat her badly. And then when she does find a man that treats her with respect, uh, somehow manages to, they just disappear, poof, like she's scared them out of, you know, the whole environment. She's yeah, yeah, in- interesting life. And then my sister Mary got married at, uh, I think it was 18, and he wound up being a drug dealer, and she divorced him after, I think, three or four years, maybe maybe less. I, I was in the Army at the time. But then she was single for a little while, found another man who was, uh, you know, came from a wealthy family. Now, I won't say wealthy, but upper-middle-class family. They did very well for themselves, and she got married had two children, but he wound up being, I believe he's a Mason, although I I never saw any evidence of it in the house. When I look back and think about it, he's one of the boys. He's always Mm -hmm. the guy that gets the the promotion when someone else should. Mm -hmm. You know, he's he's got an in somehow. Mm -hmm. So I think he's probably a Mason or a you know, know, an elk or a moose or Mm -hmm. whatever those clubs are. Um, but uh, he cheated on her, and she found out because the woman that he cheated with, and this is when her son was about 14, my nephew was 14, my niece was 12, uh, the woman he cheated with wrote her a letter and said, you know, I've I've been with your husband for quite a few months now. He, I didn't know he was married. When I found out, I was devastated, embarrassed, shocked, ashamed, and I thought you should know. So she got that letter, and I'll give her credit for this. She didn't uh, stay with him. She divorced him and had the children. But uh, his his parents, Mark's, my sister Mary's husband's parents, uh, apparently his father cheated on his mother, and his mother found out, but took it and mm-hmm. stayed because she wanted to have the life. She wanted the comfortable lifestyle with the you know, the million-dollar A-frame house in the mountains of Wisconsin and, you know, the the nice house, in te- you know, in the city in Milwaukee. and uh, But Mary wouldn't go and, there. And there is, yeah. But there's two pieces of information here, too, just in terms of... Because what we're talking about here is a culture of abuse. So this is your personal story, your personal history. But what I want to frame it against is a broken culture, a broken society, mm-hmm. where the relationships between men and women and the family bond, all of that is broken, and that it is actually endemic or epidemic in society, but because these things are so shame-based and shameful, we people don't talk about it, but mm-hmm. you can see the results and you can see the symptoms and I I don't want to spend much time on your siblings but with the story of Mary what you told me is because of your privileged information as a sister that she was always frigid 
Yeah, and, and you know, I've never been in the bedroom with her. <laughs> yeah, and, and we don't need to go but, there. Yeah, but, 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 but so I just, my description of her would be frigid. And, and that could, I, I don't know, I think her husband cheated because his father did in turn, but... You know, I don't think that Mary was probably as... Well, I'm, I'm setting the framework yeah. of the frigidity not to, not to get into those graphics, right. okay. but because, because she actually chose him, she her chose husband. husband. She chose her yeah. husband. She chose her husband because of what he could give her, the comforts, the material mm-hmm, comforts mm-hmm, and everything, exactly. just as her mother-in-law had chosen that situation. She diverged. The mother-in-law stayed with it so that she could have those material comforts and they would not be jeopardized. Your sister chose to divorce, and yet she has been bitter and angry oh. all of these years because she doesn't have those material comforts. She had, yeah, she went. She had to go back to school, get a degree, go back to work. Uh, she's very bitter about that. Yeah, she's just. She said, "By now, I should have had my second home in Arizona, and you know, living the life." Right, you know? and, and, and your she's other really bitter. Yeah, your yeah. older sister Angie. Perceives men. In other words, what I'm—they're both what, very scarred. What I'm yes. talking about is the the perception in a broken society that the man is a meal ticket. He's mm-hmm. a provider mm-hmm. of material comforts. There's no partnership there, and there cannot right. be partnership there because the bond w- with abuse, with uh, intergenerational abuse. The bond cannot happen with a man Correct. because you have been scarred by the abuse that you have suffered from your father. Mm-hmm. And so it's a brokenness that, you know, not everyone has the same childhood story, of course, but in many, many ways that the bond between the man and the woman is broken and therefore the family bond is broken. And so the reasons why women are drawn to men and vice versa is for reasons which are transactional. Yeah, more Mm ego-based than loving and partnership. Yeah, yeah. Alan talked about that a lot. The bonding is is broken. So let's step forward then to how your mother remarried and what... Yeah, she she remained single for oh my goodness. During our entire teenage years, she didn't bring any men into the home. She was she was very not that way. She just she worked like a dog, supported us, got us through school. Um, you know, I was the youngest. I went off to the military. She moved, you know, herself and my sisters from Iowa back to Wisconsin. Worked, worked, worked. Probably another ten years, I think. I can't even recall. I think she might have been 50 when she met Owen, her second husband. She uh, really loved wrestling when she was a little girl. She, her grandmother was in a rocker, and they, she would stand on the back of the rocker, and they would rock and watch wrestling together. So it was a sweet memory for her. So she always loved wrestling. And she was 50. Her and her girlfriend went to Canada to see some wrestling match. I think the wrestler's name was Brett somebody or other. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, but she happened to run into her, you know, Owen was his name, and he, uh, you know, they hit it off. 
and she, you know, was she went up there, I think, a second time to, to be with him, spend time with him, and he came down to Milwaukee, I think, two or three times, and they decided, he proposed, they decided to get married, and so he packed up all her stuff, and they moved to Edmonton, and then uh, I think a year or two later moved to a smaller town on the outskirts of Edmonton called Holden, and... Um, that's where they lived. And I guess she said the first five years, you know, they got to travel and do a lot of things that she didn't get to do in her earlier life because she was too busy working. Too busy first being a mother and then second working. So she got to have a little fun in her life for those five years. But he was, I think, 17 years older than her. And uh, he started, his body started to break down. And so she spent the, pe- the next 10 years just being his caretaker. Uh, what I wanted to get to was what happened at the. Well, first of all, you know, you—he was not your father. You only you saw him rarely and everything. Mm. But he had an inappropriate relationship with you, in which, you know, call me dad, call me daddy. Yeah, and, yeah. He well, he always wanted me to call him dad. You know, and I was I was you know forty five fifty years old, and I was like, oh, and I said, I have you know, God, if the, God is my father. And my dad is my dad. There's there's no other title for you. You're not you're my you're my mother's husband. I can't. I just it couldn't come off my tongue. We had no relationship. You know, it was, it was we just knew each other vaguely. You know, so I just thought that was really. And he just would push and push and push at that. And I, I was just like, no, sorry. I tried to do it very you know respectfully, but just something he wanted. I don't know. I so. Think, because his own children didn't respect him, so I think he was trying to get me to replace his kids somehow. So let's talk about why the children didn't respect him, because when he passed away and you went up to Canada and you spent, what, a month there, two months, helping your mother pack up? and Oh, it was a couple weeks, yeah. Oh, that was Um, Yeah, to help her, you know, with the funeral and all that. We, I had packed up the house, taken all of his things, because he had a, a coin collection, a baseball card collection, and some things I didn't want his family coming pilfering through our house looking for stuff. So I gathered up all of his things and took them out into the garage, out on the patio. So I thought when they come here, they can look through his stuff out there without entering the house. You know, they don't need to be in our house. I it was just... And and he was he was a violent man. I when when they were asleep in bed at night, he would violently flail his arms around, and he beat up my mother in bed. And I had to convince her to go sleep in a separate room. Now I know you're his wife, and he wants you there, but you know your physical safety is more important than his dementia and his violent outbursts. So she slept in another room. But back to the funeral. Um, you know, the, his, one of his daughters and two granddaughters and one husband of a grandson. Anyway, we were inside looking at photos because I had put them, his family photos all together in a tote. And, I, and we happened to be at the kitchen table and they were going through them. And the sister was flipping through the pages and I happened to get up to walk around. I think it's water or something. I looked over her shoulder down at the photo and here's a photo of, okay, you're looking at a, a kitchen sink, you know, a window behind it. You know, you're in the kitchen, you're looking at the kitchen sink, and you have cupboards below. And there's a little girl, maybe six years old, opening the cupboards, but she's 
not, you know, knelt down, you know, on her knee looking in. She has her legs completely straight and her body's completely bent over so her, her butt is exposed. But she's wearing blue jeans. But the thing that caught my eye was that the blue jeans were cut out in such a way as to where her butt, her buttocks, was completely exposed. There's no underwear. I mean, she's wearing pants, but the pants are cut okay, out. Okay, so let's let's just yeah. let's cut to the chase here. This is this is an erotic image of a girl. Yeah, it's intentionally erotic. The entire back panel of the jeans has been cut out, and not so only that, that but a piece of fringe was sewn has into been the sewn pants. around the panel so that it highlights the fact that the entire back piece is missing. Yes. Further, because I just want to get this yeah. part and move on. Yeah. Further, when you're cleaning out the house, you discover oh, yes. massive quantities of pornography from in his every collection. every decade, from yeah. 1920 to 1980. And other very clear, visible evidence that your mother had married a Another pedophile. pedophile. I was blown away. Because up until that point, I thought he was just a guy who owned a resort, and, you know, he made my mom happy for a while. But no, he was another pedophile. And here in his family, when Diana went into apoplexy over this photo, the daughter daughter just said, Oh, it's no big deal. That's nothing. So what you have is a completely dysfunctional family and I don't want to get into their stories and everything yeah, they're yeah. completely dysfunctional because they've been raised by a pedophile yes and even the granddaughter and her husband they're like oh well that's just who they're Europeans they do those things and and I lost it I'm like no no they don't that's not no that's not a thing you just brush off so even the the grandchildren mm-hmm. just kind of thought that was a part of life you know, where we we don't talk about it. If we do, it's because they're European and it's okay. Mm-hmm. No, no. And I I think too, and I don't want to get too far afield here, but what has happened in our culture is that pornography has become completely normalized. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I have I know that over the years there are listeners that have gotten in touch with Alan, and I have heard from people too. And some people just say straight up and straight out, what is wrong with pornography? So in other words, they're into it, they're doing it, they're listening to some things that Alan is saying, but they're in this disconnect where this has been so normalized in the culture Mm-hmm. that it, it's normal. And so they cannot look at it with abhorrence. They cannot look at it and say, there is something wrong. Mm-hmm. I mean, just get, you know, voyeurism was always a textbook mental, ab- mental aberration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To to whatever you do, um I mean, you know, since we're we're skirting the edges of, you know, explicit conversation here, as Alan would say to me, whatever two people do as an expression of their love and emotion and feeling for each other is fine. Watching other people do it is a mental aberration. Yeah, it has to be intimate and personal, and that's part of that bonding, not 
inviting others in to watch or to be watched. And Judith Reisman, who is, has mm-hmm. passed away, I mean, there are, there are plenty of people who have exposed certain harms of pornography. But what I've seen, because I've talked to, you know, it, it's not just a man thing. Women can become addicted to it as well. Mm-hmm. But I personally have spoken to several, several young men who have either overcome an addiction to pornography or are in the throes of an addiction that they grapple with. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, for someone to want to talk to me about that means that they're struggling with it because if they were okay with it, it wouldn't come up. They wouldn't want to talk about it. They would just accept that's what they do and there's not a problem. Mm-hmm. But the the men that I have spoken with have talked to me about exactly what Dr. Judith Reisman covered in her work, which is pornography is designed to escalate. Mm -hmm. There are many people out there, psychologists and so forth, who talk about pornography and they help you, you know, like, okay, especially pornography in relation to habitual masturbation, which can become a problem, which can impact, infringe on people's ability to get other things done and they go oh well it's okay in its place so the pornography is okay in its place and the masturbation is okay in its place and they are not going to go to the place where that Reisman went to which is it's an escalation. Mm-hmm. It's a stairway. Designed and even that way. Ted Bundy talked about that. Other serial mm-hmm. killers have too. Um, who and you get this in the transgender mm-hmm. movement now. And there are a lot of people whose names are escaping me at the moment. But there are people who have covered in great detail and studied exposés that. The transgenders themselves are saying that some of the warped things they're doing are a direct result of pornography. Those people who are mm-hmm. struggling with what's going on. With well, them. and I think, yeah, I think you know, you start with you know, male female pornography, and you get to a point where your body doesn't respond anymore, and so you're looking for something different. You're looking for something new, and it escalates, and and these, uh, I, I've been told that these sites uh, lead you towards younger and younger children. They lead you towards the opposite uh, gender than you, that you normally would look at. And it, yeah, it constantly escalates you and towards more and more violence as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's crazy. It's crazy. So the, so this place in the culture of normalizing aberrant behavior mm-hmm. has been going on at, since what we call the sexual revolution, since the 60s and Playboy and Penthouse and Chester the Molester. Oh, and, yeah. You know, the, we have a whole world that has been created in which supposedly pornography is a good thing in a marriage. It can help. It sparks. And you get, you know, you see this in the mainstream now, you know, in magazines targeted both at men and women. Oh, spice up your sex life, et cetera, et cetera. Until I remember that 
Alan had a listener years ago from one of the Scandinavian countries who contacted him, and she was living with a man. She was a young woman. She was living with a man, and he had pornographic images all over the house, you know, like tacked up in, you know, not just the bedroom, but the kitchen, you know, naked bodies and um, other pornographic images were just household decoration. And she was talking to Alan and he said, well, that's not normal. That's not healthy. Yeah. That's not respectful of you as a woman or your place in the relationship, you know, but this is, this is how worldwide this acceptance is so that she doesn't just go, oh, wait a minute. No. That's not happening where I live. It's accepted. Hmm. Yeah, that's it's. Yeah, but yeah, I think the pornography because it guides you towards younger and younger people, children, and it guides you towards the opposite gender, and it guides you towards the more and more violence. You know. It, it 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 just makes me think that that's why transgenderism is becoming so much more common. I remember years ago, maybe ten years ago, looking up the percentage of of transgender gay, you know, the LGBTQ, you know, what percentage of the population that was, and it was, I think, less than one percent. And now, if you look those statistics up, it's it's. I think approaching 10%. Well, I can up you on that one because the woman who is the, I think, president of, I'm pretty sure it's GLAAD, which is the one of the gay and lesbian right. alliance, whatever, yeah. but anyway, GLAAD, is high up in the UN and the World Economic Forum. Mm -hmm. And I think it was Neil Foster who sent me it, it, this was so shocking, I couldn't believe it, but I did a lot of homework a few weeks ago and found out, oh my goodness, this is very true. She spoke at a World Economic Forum event a couple of years ago, and because of an initiate, uh, initi initiative that the WEF and the UN were doing to normalize the LGBTQ and transgender thing in schools and so forth. Mm -hmm. And she said, in the current uh, millennial generation, the percentage is 20%. Oh my goodness. It gets worse. She said later on in that panel that they were having, she said, and if you go across the demographics, and she had this whole statistic-based thing, and you go and you expand the age route, the age rate out, blah 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 blah. Again, statistics. Mm -hmm. She said we're looking at closer to forty percent. Wow. That I've you know I'm, I'll, I'll That's I've saved it somewhere. It is jaw dropping. But we're talking about what Alan wrote about in the '90s, which is the hermaphroditic mm -hmm. agenda, the androgynous mm -hmm. agenda. This is unfolding in front of our eyes, and you are looking at not just cultural, but what is happening through uh, inoculation and uh, yeah, modified the chemical foods, modifications, the chemicals, yeah. yeah. And, and even what Carl Jung said 60, 70 years ago, which is the hips of women are getting narrower. They're, you know, hips are designed mm -hmm. to be wider for childbirth, etc. And the shoulders, I saw this, if you look of at... Of men. Yeah. Of men. And part of it was what Hollywood portrayed. You know, you had uh, Robert Mitchum, 
And then a decade later, you've got Newman, uh, Paul Newman. So you go, you go from Robert Mitchum to Paul Newman. And if you look at it, and you know, we're, so we're told that Robert Redford and Paul Newman, oh, they're, you know, men, men, men. Well, if you compare them, just what we're being portrayed is the ideal body type. Mm-hmm. You've got much narrower shoulders mm-hmm. with Paul Newman than you have with the stars that they presented in the forties yeah, and fifties, twenties. And yeah. then let's cut over to Keanu Reeves and um, the woman Carrie, whatever, who in you know who, in the Matrix movies. Oh, her, yeah. They they basically are almost like a carbon copy of one they another. They are, yeah. yeah. The, the, so this is androgyny being illustrated in the movies mm-hmm. and that's what you've got so it's it is shocking for someone high up in the UN and the World Economic Forum to say 20% but really more likely 40% and yet we know that that's what the agenda is we know that that's where they want to take us mm-hmm. so I, I want to talk about evil yes. and the preternatural and yes. I think that this is evil. We're watching an mm-hmm. evil agenda mm-hmm. unfold. Well, and I don't think there's another word for when it. When you were talking about that, I kept thinking of the image of the Baphomet, mm-hmm. who has male genitalia with female breasts. Mm-hmm. You know, he's got the one hand up, the one hand down, you know. You know, that's as above, so below. But that's not what's happening. But, yeah, I think that's Satan slash Lucifer... Uh, however you want to think of it, the the evil, like there's that current of God that moves through the world. There's also the current of Lucifer that moves through the world. The I, the world revolutionary movement, I believe, is what uh, William Guy Carr just describes it as in his book, uh, Satan, Prince of This World. Highly recommend that book. Because Alan mentioned the world revolutionary movement. I can't count how many times and so many times I'd be like what is that I just thought it was like you know just the group of people you know the elite the rich you know the royalty moving down through time passing on their wealth and their riches and their twisted mentality for control no that's not what Alan was talking about and he never uh, quantified it but in that book it's very specifically delineated what that means and it means the, when the when the fall happened in heaven and Lucifer fell, you know he did his bad deeds. And I'm not very well schooled on the Bible, so forgive me. But when he was cast down to earth and took you know one third of the of the host of angels with him, those angels proceeded to move through humanity to inhabit bodies, whether they were receptive or not. If they're receptive, they're perfectly possessed, as Alan talked about. If they're not receptive, then they are possessed and and seeking relief from, you know, a priest or, or, or whatever the... You know the tribes, or they're burying it in drugs and alcohol and sure. sexual promiscuity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But evil exists, and and this was it brings us full circle back to the beginning of the conversation with Giovanni, is he discussed it in in vivid detail how it affected. I think it was his mother, and she would be on drugs, and he could see the demon enter her, or or be present within her, and and he could see it. And I experienced that as well 
with my abuse because now that you know Jesus has opened up my memories over the course of the past three months I have had like a movie turned on and I and God said I want you to journal this to record it and I thought okay well I'll just get on my dragon software and do it easily and effectively well no <laughs> he said I want, you, I want you to have a pencil and a pad of paper and journal it and so I did yeah. I, I just want I want to come right back to that, but mm-hmm. I want to say what you talked about the fall mm-hmm. before, before we move away from sure, that. yeah. Uh, I in, learned a lot about that too. In the yeah. early talks, and and a listener uh, that I I hope I'm doing a real history with soon, but a listener um, named Prince, who is in his mid seventies and has listened to Alan for a long time. I just love it when he communicates with me because it's a short and sweet. He'll send me a little handwritten note, and he's usually pointing me to something on the website. He gives me encouragement, and then he'll say, show ABC, XYZ, and he'll list out three, four, five, or six shows. And there was a letter that he sent me a few months ago where he was pointing to some of the talks that Alan did in especially 2006 into 2007, where he was showing us what the elite believe. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of people who turn off when you start talking about Jesus and God and the Creator and evil and oh, fallen Lucifer, angels and yeah. Lucifer. And Alan was, Alan knew this. He knew that we were in a secularized world and that people would turn off. And he had a very unique way of putting this information across. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that he did in that time period, the way that he put it across is, this is what the elite believe. Yes. This is what the elite believe. They believe this. And you'll find that in his cutting through books all the way through. This is what they believe. So if this is what they believe, why do they believe it? Mm-hmm. And how does it manifest? So those are just two questions. And I want to take it back to your journaling and where it has taken you to the level of abuse that you went through. Because what we're about to get to, into here... It's fair. It's, it's ugly. It's, it's ugly. Just and ugly. It's ugly. It's evil. And it's like a Hollywood movie. And yet, if we can not put psychological terminology on it... In other words, I don't want to talk about it the way that everybody else is talking about it. Mm-hmm. And this isn't a movie... These are memories, and they are memories that I hope that you can under that you recognize are coming from a lucid, well organized mind. Okay. <laughs> um, no, uh, I guess first the memories of 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 the actual uh, just abuse with my father opened up first when I got married. And my husband and I would be intimate. While we were intimate, more memories surfaced about group dynamics of what you might call gang rapes, you know, of children, many children. And, um, you know, I would process that as time went on. But this past year, I was able to see a lot more. Um, It moved from... Not just my father, to groups of people, groups of children, all interacting together. And I also 
um, could see black robes present. And it was funny because I mentioned that once with my sister, and she perked up. And she says, oh, you know, Cousin Cheryl mentioned that once. And for years, I had always been baffled by that. Um, but when she said that, I thought I finally got a little validation. Never went into it with her, and I never called Cousin Cheryl. But um, this past year, as my memories opened up, I saw that there, yes, indeed, were black robes, and there were symbols. And now that I'm starting to understand signs and symbols, I understood what they were, and they were satanic. And I was like, wow, okay, wasn't expecting that, God. <laughs> it's quite a slap in the face, you know, but process that. You know, I'd have a, he'd give me a memory, and I would journal it, and I'd spend the next two or three days just kind of digesting it, trying to understand it. And then as I did, I would have questions, and I'd go back to the journal, and then he'd give me more. So it was just kind of pieced together, and it wasn't chronological, but I'll, I'll try to present it that way. But uh, So I was able to move past just the sexual abuse into now seeing the ritual aspect of it. I didn't think there was anything, uh, say, witchcraft-related or satanic. I just thought it was part of some weird... Because this happened when we would visit my grandparents, and it would happen... Uh, in, in a in the side yard or side building of a Baptist church. So I also want to interject here without derailing your train of thought sure. that you have given me little snippets here or there as they come to you. And what first came to you when you mentioned this to me way back when mm. you had this idea that it was abuse towards a group of children. Mm -hmm. happening maybe in some kind of place near a church. You weren't sure, but you had these images that were pretty clear. And then there were two other things that you told me at that time, before the witchcraft or anything, but you said that you thought that your grandfather, your father's father, was high up in masonry. Yeah, because I could see him sitting in the the lodge part of at first the memories were I thought we were just in some shack like a garage or just a shack on you know on the this you know the back of a church and you know across the grass field but the more my memories opened up it was it was a masonic lodge because I part of my journaling was I sketched the building that I saw and lo and behold there's the the compass in the square and a whole building and as I sketched each floor, it was a basement, a first floor, and a second floor. Uh, the way it's designed was like a ziggurat. And, you know, like I said, now that I understand signs and symbols, I, I get that the basement was a Wiccan haven. That's where the witchcraft occurred. And then the top floor was where the Masonic Lodge held its rituals. And the main floor was like the, the cover or the beard for the church. And, well, this is where we do, you know, Sunday school. And they had, you know, a rug with chairs. And, you know, it, it could pass for like a little Sunday school thing. But what they would do is they would collect up the chairs, put them against the wall, roll up the rug, and under the rug was a pentagram with, you know, certain symbols painted on the floor, and they would bring their accoutrements, 
you know, and place them at the... Also, the know. memories that you have uncovered is they weren't moving the chairs against the wall and they weren't rolling up the carpet. They had children oh, doing the children that. So doing the children it, yeah. moved the chairs away and the children rolled mm-hmm. the rug. So the children prepared the, room. the scene for mm-hmm. their own abuse. Yes, yes, yeah. So, yeah, and that was from, it was funny because as I, as I began to sketch it, because I was trying to figure out the logistics, how did that work? And um, different parts of the building would be blank, but as I, as I filled it in more and as God gave me more memories, then I go, oh, that's what's in that corner over there. Oh, that's how that, that's what that was. But in the basement was a tunnel, and and they brought children in through that tunnel. It was, yeah, underground, and I don't know where the tunnel went to, but it was very, very, very long. It had bones of children and adults, the, the sacrificed humans, um, embedded into the walls and the floor. And so these children were brought down into these tunnels and walked through it, and it was part of the terror presented to them was, and I say them because I never had to go through the tunnel. I was part of this intergenerational family that, you know, I came from above down and those poor children came, well, we were all poor children, but they came through the tunnel walking on human bones embedded in the floors and the walls. And then before you reached the actual basement building, the the room, there was an altar carved into the to the earth that had you know you know some skulls and candles and just a whole another level of terrors. These individuals walked past it, you know, into this basement that was um, where the sacrifices occurred. So that was pretty horrifying to uncover and remember, but it is. Uh, there's a movie that that Alan liked for for a variety of reasons that I watched with him probably three times called The Ninth Gate, and that is Johnny Depp stars in The Ninth Gate, and I want to say uh, that I believe The Ninth Gate was directed by a pedophile. Really? Let, yeah. Let's. I've seen that movie. Yeah, it's creepy. It is creepy. And what I want to do is look that up really mm. quickly. Well, while she's looking this up, I just want to interject here that part of my memories was that I could see my grandfather sitting in the main chair in the Masonic area. He would have the women walk by and do like a sexual dance to entice him and his two lieutenants on each side of his his chair. So he had to have been a 33rd degree Mason because he was in the main chair. I can't imagine he would be anything else. But his wife, my grandmother, she was the head of a Wiccan coven. And so together, they that uh, that's how they operated. And my grandmother, because I was the third child of three girls, she thought that that was is significant in witchcraft world and the fact that I was a Leo I was born in August and um, my mom named me Diana which is a goddess which that goddess evolved down from basically Isis 
through different morphing of names. Well, it's not Diana, the goddess of the hunt. Yeah, yeah. But um, it's yeah, it's basically if you read Morals and Dogma, you'll you'll understand that Isis, as she moved through different countries and different pagan religions, changed her name all the way through. Like Isis, like Alan used to say, she's a thousand veils, a thousand names. Diana was one of them. So I'm a Leo, which back in in Christian times, I believe the summer solstice occurred in August. I'm Diana Isis. I'm the third of three girls, and she is a wit- head of a witchcraft coven. So she just thought I was the her replacement. I'm I'm the the, <laughs> the chosen golden child or something, which I I really didn't understand it then. But remembering it now, looking back, going, oh, I can see why she would think that. Okay, because to them these things are significant. But yeah, so that's that's how the masonry and witchcraft were blended, and I I think she was maybe third or fourth generation, which would have made me like I think I think I was the sixth generation, so the sixth was like important too, for her. Anyhow, I just wanted to interject that we'll go back to the ninth gate. The ninth gate was directed by. Directed, produced, and oh. co-written by Roman Polanski. Of course, of course. Okay. Yeah. So Roman Polanski is famous for being married to Sharon Tate, mm-hmm. who was murdered in ritualistic fashion. There's the uh, Helter Skelter, the Charles Manson. This is a, a an area of history I remember telling you about a book that I read. This was probably a year and a half ago, and the name has escaped me, but I read a really good history um, that raises a lot of questions about what happened around the Sharon Tate murders. But he had to leave the U.S., and he's not been welcomed back in like 40 years or something like that because of the charges of rape against a 13-year-old girl. Mm-hmm. And there were lots of rumors that lot, that you know other young women were abused. But Roman Polanski is who directed Rosemary's Baby. And Rosemary's Baby were talking about child ritual, satanic abuse, mm-hmm. and child sacrifice. And breeding. And breeding. And we're also talking about covens and things that are hidden from, you know, things that look normal on the outside, but when you scratch the surface, you're looking at evil. So this is Roman Polanski, and he directed The Ninth Gate, 1999, and Alan and I watched this several times together. And I'm bringing it up because I know that there are some people listening to this that are going, what? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there was the, the, the whole, in a nutshell, the ninth gate was the seller of rare books, Johnny Depp, who is commissioned to find a rare book for a buyer. And that opens up a portal, the ninth gate. But below this surface, in other words, the ninth gate is really when you make a conscious effort and you go through these rituals and you have merged completely with evil and have become, you know, more or less all-powerful. Perfectly but possessed. Perfectly possessed yeah. and beyond. Mm-hmm, you know, you, mm-hmm. you're, you're like the most perfect of the perfectly possessed. Mm-hmm. And then, But below that 
was a whole coven. They also wanted the book, but it's a whole coven of kind of eyes wide shut sexual ritual, mm -hmm. sexual magic, and witchcraft. Mm -hmm. And there's a scene where the guy who's wanting to buy the book, in other words, he's at a, he perceives himself to be at a, the highest level of evil, the higher level of evil. And he comes in when they're doing this ritual sex magic, and he walks through and he's just like knocking people over, going mumbo-jumbo, mumbo-jumbo. He's mocking them for their faith in these lower-level lower level, rituals. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so what we're talking about here with you and your story is we're talking about layers and levels of evil. Yes. So somebody, I'm not going to name names. I could say uh, you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. <laughs> or I could say she's O mm -hmm, mm -hmm. with her own show. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I could talk about lots of people that I am quite convinced are perfectly possessed. They've made I their Totally pact. agree. Totally agree. But below that and all through society. And I mean pervasively. Pervasive. Through society. We are talking about organized evil that we don't see because we've been trained not mm -hmm. to see it. That many of us have lived through and experienced on one level or another. And our, and our Pavlovian trained or MK Ultra trained to forget it. Yeah to push it aside, yeah, it's, it's a big deal. And just to, to put this out there as well, is I have since learned that the rituals involved in Freemasonry, free climbing the ropes of Freemasonry, are the same rituals used to climb the ropes of witchcraft. They are one and the same. Really? Yeah, there's, if, there's a... I, I think I'll, I'll find the, the YouTube clip showing. It's a, I think it's an interview side by side of an ex Mason and an ex high level witchcraft. You know, two high level guys saying this is what we did at this level, and each and they and they do side by side. They're identical. Mm -hmm. So Freemasonry isn't just. You know the 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 rituals talked about in you know morals and dogma. It's 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 a form of witchcraft with a different name. I think Freemasonry just has like so many different faces. Mm -hmm. It's yeah, mm -hmm. it's mind-boggling. But for me in my history, they merged together. And, and this is one other thing. This is why you know Alan talked a lot about the New Age, and I have covered that as well is that through our, in the West, ignorance of what Hinduism is about with their multiple gods, etc., etc., mm -hmm. and Blavatsky and theosophy, and believe you me, theosophy is being pushed by people that you call your patriot leaders, <laughs> and, and it is given to you on the yoga mat. Because I came out of yoga and Alan was very clear in his explanation that yoga, no matter how fine you think that stretch is, each asana or posture is a specific imploring 
of a demon it's a to come down. It's a calling down. for the demon to come down <coughs> and enter your body. That is what an asana is. And those at the top, at certainly at the Brahman level of Hinduism, but those at the very top, they understand what it is. And it has been softened and westernized and made to be nothing other than a physical activity to make your spine yeah, supple. different kind of exercise. Yeah. Here's just something. We should put a picture of this up when we do the video. It's the child's pose. Yes. So when you see that, ask yourself why a child would ever pose like that. And think about the sexual component of witchcraft and Satanism and all of it. I, I just never could... could grasp how that's a child's pose so i just want to throw that in there about <laughs> yoga <laughs> so you guide us along i don't know where we're at now well we're we're i think we're probably at a point where we want to wind down a little bit but before we wind down i want to get key elements i think we've given mm -hmm. a very good in introduction even though it's a long talk i think we've given a, given a very good introduction into real evil that exists but i want you to uh, cover anything of your own personal story that you think yeah uh, the what what would happen is is when i was 4 my, you know, we'd go visit our grandparents, you know, mm -hmm. for a, a one week or two week visit in the summer, you know, when school is out. And that's when we, my sisters and I were initiated, for lack of a better word, but we were, you know, take, we'd go to church on Sunday and they would, you know, with my mom, my mom was, played the position of the dupe. She was always whisked away by somebody. I thought, oh, Karen, come on. You, the kids are going to Sunday school. Let the men do what they do. Come here. And so she was always pulled away from us while, you know, and then we were whisked away and, and put into these uh, rituals, you know, and they were satanic ritual abuse, you know, with the black robes and the whole deal. And... When we were when that didn't happen on Sundays, when we were at their house, mom was, you know, again, drugged, except this time she was brought along with us in this very fugued, drugged state, and we were also given drugs as children. Um, that, that's another thing, too, I want you to say, is that you were introduced to marijuana as a toddler uh, yeah, yeah, by yeah, your yeah. father. Yeah, well, that that was down in the basement to, you know, to keep me pa passive or pacified or whatever. But, yeah, he would, he he first tried, you know, edibles, but it takes two hours before it really affects the body. I mm -hmm. think in a smaller body, less time, but he wanted a quicker uh, you know, results. So he would smoke a joint and then he would, you know, what they call shotgun it into me and I would breathe it in. Well, I, I got to liking the feeling of smoke on the back of my throat. So I was a pot smoker most of my life until, you know, I got baptized and Jesus helped me stop. So that's been pretty awesome. And no, no looking back, no withdrawals, no anything. But yeah. So, yeah, there was always elements of drugs introduced. And plus, my grandfather, I believe, it was my grandfather and my uncle because they both had the same name. And when I looked up what their, what their career was, they were like a risk assessment 
not assessment, a risk something manager of a hospital. So they had access to, you know, the, the pharmacy in the, in the hospital. They, you know, they had the keys to every door mm-hmm. so they could get whatever they needed. And plus they were masons and I'm sure they knew the local pharmacist and could just get whatever they needed. But most of the children, I would say all the children were drugged until they were a certain age. All of us were, Oh, I want to say like MK altered with certain key words, key phrases, so that we would either turn on and be little sexual seducers or be turned off and be able to go to school and forget, and you know, two, two personalities, really. So there's that aspect of it. And, um, but my mom was always, she was, it, it's like the way we are played in society is is the satanic rituals and things are going on above our heads we are the dupes because we don't know what's going on we we're the ones that are being fooled into eating chemicals fooled into thinking chemtrails are just clouds you know we're dupes we're we're the dupe well that's the role that my mother was given or it's something that ends in your arm is safe and effective yes yes something in your arm that's safe and effective all the dupes that swallowed that it's almost a part of the ritual because when i look at it in the microcosm of the rituals i went through my mother was always the dupe and and she was actually brought into a ritual, drugged, and placed in the the physical location of where the quote unquote dupe went. And in this particular ritual, there was thirteen massive bonfires and thirteen dupes, and you know, children and young adults were sacrificed over these fires, and and there. What I learned is that the more terror they can create in that individual, the the happier they are. And then once they die, they can, you know, bleed them out, drink their blood, cannibalize. Where do you think, I mean, I'm just asking the audience, where they think missing children go? And missing adults. And missing adults. There's millions of them across the world. Every year, every month, and they're being disappeared, you know, like, just disappeared into these tunnels and, and sacrificed. And when you're talking about the end of an age and the beginning of a new age, and you're talking about, because we are, that is what we're talking about. We're talking about ages that are many, many thousands of years long. Yes, since Babylon. And Yes, before before Babylon, because that's what they were doing, sacrificing babies to Moloch and burning them. Talk about what you found. Do you remember that thing that the the book you were uh, you were you had discovered something about ritual sacrifice in Babylon? Oh, I I went on to YouTube to look around for uh, satanic ritual abuse, and I found other survivors, you know, giving their testimony. And um, one woman, she was also abused. She now interviews other people who are abused, but she went back into the Bible to discover that that that's what went on back then, and that's why they God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, and that's why he insisted certain good guys in the Bible 
wipe out entire cities. So this has been going on since the fall of Lucifer. Because Lucifer demands to Sacrifice, be fed. Yeah. He demands to be fed. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it, it was always about, you know, your firstborn, you'd give to the whatever pagan god it is yeah. all across the world. Uh, yeah, Alan and talked about, I, I don't remember the time. title of the book, yeah. but I think it was written by Robert Graves, but he talked about the early temples, and this is mm-hmm. Hebrew temples, but he talked about the way that the altar was designed and the way that they had these basically... So that the blood would the blood puddle would, pu- would, It had pour, to roll down and then go into what you... Puddle and pour into some sort of uh, vase or a cup. Well, I had to do that was for the ritual part of it, but mm-hmm. there was so much sacrifice going on, and believe you me, it wasn't just goats. No, that no. the blood had to be designed. You almost had like an aqueduct system below the tabernacle and the altar because mm-hmm. the blood had to run off somewhere. And it, mm-hmm. we're talking gallons and gallons and gallons mm-hmm. of blood per day. And it's and still this that is way. described in, you know, our archaeological excavations and books yeah. that have been yeah. written by historians of sacrificial and that Yeah, and that's, I, I don't know if that's the macrocosm, but in the microcosm of my history, in that basement of that that building, they had, uh, you know, a, a, an altar space, and it was designed to pool the blood and drain it down and so that they could put a chalice under it, fill the chalice up, close the whole <laughs> you know, fill their bowls up and save it, and, you know, and literally... Cut up body parts, and you know, I remember hands and feet were sellable, as well as decapitating infants, selling infants' heads that ultimately would be processed in some sort of way so that they had a skull. Which masons, at a certain level, certain degrees, they're required to drink what they call wine out of a human skull, a real human skull. And I think that's like around 32nd or 33rd degree. So, I mean, we'll put another link for that if you want to learn about that of a a person who was in the entertainment industry at about the 32nd degree who got out and became saved and he did an expose video on it. So... It's it's very disturbing and it, it's it's shocking and it's hard to believe because here's the quote, don't know who did it, but the greatest thing the devil ever did was to convince you that he did not exist. So we need to realize he does exist. He's real. He's just as real as Jesus. And there's no disputing it. It's It's becoming more pervasive. It's more in our face. I mean... I, I, you know, transsexuals are now having fashion shows inside of churches, mm-hmm. and little girls are being paraded in lingerie and parades in what was it, Spain or France mm-hmm. that I just showed mm-hmm. you the other day. Mm-hmm. It's out there. It's in our face. I mean, I don't, I don't know what you know. I want to say we got to stop it, you know, but I don't know how you go about doing that. But the first step is to recognize it exists. And if you don't recognize it exists, it will forever dupe you. You know, I mean, there, there, is, there is one thing about viewing the world in 
purely, you know, cause and effect. And or with polyana glasses and, on. Well, and, and, you know, or just, or not even necessarily polyana, but just trying to see it from what mm-hmm. you might call the scientific, the, the rational mind. world, yeah. But Alan often said, when you look at an agenda that has been planned and implemented intergenerationally, and he had followed it back thousands of years, can you really say that this is just an organized brotherhood, or are you looking at something preternatural? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think we're looking at... At something preternatural. It's evil alive in the world. It's intelligence, and I like the the comment that you made that it works through people, and this is one thing... Just like God works through people, Mm -hmm. so does Lucifer. This is one thing that a lot of people say is when they're in the process of waking up, even if they've been at it for years and years, it's always them out there that are doing something. Mm -hmm. It's them that that they have planned something and they have put something in the food supply and they have inoculated us and they have poisoned the water. And so if we can just get them voted out or if we can just expose this of it, and then Alan would always say, look at the man or the woman in the mirror. Look at the man, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. you are the microcosm for the macrocosm. And I think that one of the elements this that that for your story that goes hand in glove with the baptism is the mm-hmm. fact that you were able to be honest with, about, with yourself and mm-hmm. about a choice, a clear choice. Granted, you were nine years old and you'd been abused for five years, but you had made a choice to participate actively in, in what that was going evil. on. Yes. I, yes. And when I owned up to that, my, my shame disappeared, which is kind of a contradiction of thoughts. You would think your shame would come from that, but it was it was the opposite, where I realized, oh, I, I was just as much a part of it. I can't say it was them, because I made a conscious choice to participate. Now, granted, you go into my journals, you can see the manipulation that went on to get me to get to that point. But yeah... I participated. And this is something... And it's, you know, it's, you know, it's not something you want to... I'm not proud of it. I'm not happy about it. But it's what happened. And it's what happened after that, that, you know, as an adult, I'm able to go, oh, wow, and make different choices, you know, to repent and never do again. And I think that was, you know, I was trained in witchcraft as a little girl, I went into, you know, and then I forgot all about it through my teen years. And then in my 20s, went into the new age, and it started to become activated again. But I had another experience that, you know, said, oh, wait a minute, no, 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 and just backed off and away from it entirely. And and then I found Alan. So, yeah, you've got to own your piece of the pie. But first you have to know what all the pieces, not all the pieces, but that, it comes from the New Age. It comes from movies and music and all the different ways that we're programmed to think that this is just how people are. This is just how they live. This is just how, just how, just how. And no, it's how the devil, Satan, Lucifer, has taught us to think is normal. And it's not. And 
it's yeah being saved has been a remarkably impactful intellectually awakening experience as well as spiritually bonding with you know the father it's i feel an incredible safety at such a level that i can go back and face those things and look at them i mean i'm 50 58 years old and i'm just now getting the memories of all of the evil pieces of it you know and all of the the interviews I've listened to of all the different, you know, sa- satanic ritual abuse survivors, they're generally beyond the age of 40 when they finally feel safe enough to remember. And they have a, you know, husband or a life that allows them, you know, physical safety, psychological safety, emotional safety. But every single one of them have relied on Jesus to help them get there. But I know the ones that go into psychiatry and psychology to have that type of work done just have a very different experience well there is not it's almost impossible to have an acknowledgement of evil in the secular world Mm -hmm. and if you um can't see that and that's what alan would always say you cannot turn away from evil Mm -mm. and i really like how during the covid the what yet what I call the year of COVID because that's when Alan was here and talking about it. Mm-hmm. He talked about evil he did. a lot. He did. He really did. And I think it's good to remind ourselves that we are that nothing has changed. All that happened is that the the ugly teeth of evil were bared. They were exposed to us mm-hmm. in twenty twenty. And just because the the lips have covered over those teeth we ought not look away. This was not just some people screwing something up or some pharmaceutical companies getting into bed with government. Or this just is greed evil. for money. Yeah. Oh, no. It's beyond that. Yeah. It's evil expressing itself. And I want to throw one last thing in there. I know we're very, very, very at the end. <laughs> um, I reflected back on, on all the years I... I did the transcriptions and studying and research and all that. And I didn't, you know, I had just a few memories surfaced during that time, but the brilliance of Alan Watt and how he presented the information I realized was he gets you to be able to look at the secular world and its corruption in every single aspect, medical, judicial, uh, legal, the police, just the individual, the sexual. He he presented it in such a way. If you if you look at the whole picture of what he put out there, was if you can look at it, the evil within people on a secular level, you know, in the world, all around us, in every single thing, then at some point your mind goes well wait a minute why is it everywhere why is how is it and and you start to go to that next level that he talked about that existed but didn't spell it out for you because you've got to get there by yourself yeah and the and and if you can't get there just listen to his shows from start to finish i know it will take years 
but it will get you to that next level. It, he makes you look at the evil through the corruption, through the sexual depravity, through the greed, through the every single bad thing in this world. If you can look at what you can see in your, you're right there. If you can get there, you can go to the next level. And and I thought that's brilliant. When I clued into that, I was I'm, I'm having goosebumps all over now. Just saying this. If you can just get that, the next level will come automatically because your brain cannot figure out any other. There's no other avenue that that can come from except that, from evil people would, that exists yes. and is real it's physical it's tangible and it's in our everyday world in everything we look at everything we listen to even everything we eat there's evil in it chemicals are evil it's everywhere air the air we breathe it's all saturated with evil all of it. And, and it's it's a terrifying thing to confront. But if you can, then you can also confront that there is an ultimate good. And that that is what protects and saves you. I mean, I don't want this to be about... Well, you know, I mean, people, Alan would go on a show early on. I mean, he even said this on air is the Christians don't want me on their shows anymore Mm. because he doesn't speak the Orthodox language. He was very careful in the way he put things across always. I myself feel that I've got a truncated piece of time here and a specific thing that I'm supposed to be doing with that time and some of it is cutting to the chase he was careful because he wanted to give you that panoramic view of secular evil Mm -hmm. but you really nailed it when you said he wanted you to do it yourself picture and he shows you to do it yourself yes your mind will it can only conclude one thing yeah from all of that information, I mean, it can conclude many things, I mean, but you know what I'm yeah. saying. It will move you to the next level. Yeah. It really will. So, and, and I think that that was God's role for him was to present that, and now God has placed you in this chair and put me in that transcript chair because he certainly compelled me. Trust me, it was a whole lot of work for a lot of years. But... um we're fulfilling, I think, the next step of the role, bringing the tribe together. And had Giovanni not done his interview with you, it would not have unlocked things for me. And it gave just... Uh, it's its this cascade of events that's happening, and I, it's, I don't know how else to say it. Well, I d- we could know, go on forever. We could too. go on forever, and we should probably start. And uh, oh, yeah. I don't know. There's got to be another cabinet to clean out somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> but I do, I do believe that what I sense in the three years since Alan and the ending of the the ending of the most obvious of the COVID operation 
is that even amongst the people who say that they've awakened and that they understand what's going on, there's a lulling back to sleep. Mm -hmm. There's a lulling into complacency. There's an accepting of the status quo. There's a learning to navigate evil and cohabitate with it. And I really do, I don't have any sense that I'm some special chosen person, but I really do believe that I, uh, that it is on me that I feel a, an urgency to say, don't go back to sleep. Mm -mm. We live in an evil world. We're swimming in an evil world. And I do think that there are enough of us, um, the, tribe who want to live in light mm -hmm. that we can tip the balance if we don't get complacent yeah so thank you so much for coming out here and helping me well you're welcome i thank your husband for allowing you to well I, I told you it's a selfish thing because i get great joy out of it it's, a, it's incredible gratification to see the end result and to watch the receiver of that squeal with delight. I, I just walk just, around and open it's, drawers. It's totally and go, ah! selfish, yeah. <laughs> All right, so listen, I'm not sure what happens next. I I think that it might be Elmer who's living in Thailand and we'll talk a bit about geoengineering and other things, but I'm not sure. I can't promise you anything but the fact that I'll be back. <laughs> All right, take care. Well, I got some